Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Acts chapter 11. In a moment, we will read verses 1 through 18. Acts chapter 11. I'm grateful, thankful that you were uh, taken care of by uh, those who uh, filled this pulpit while I was gone for three weeks. Thank God for people who are willing to open up His Word to you all care for your souls, care for your hearts while I was away, and know that even though I was thousands of miles away, my heart was here with you all. And my father-in-law, who I spent some time with uh, (laughs) uh, during our trip, he's been a pastor for over 30 years, he's been in the same church for over 30 years, gave me this encouragement, he said, you know, After I have come back from vacation, I always wonder when I get up to preach, can I still do it? (laughs) So I said, thanks, Pops. I said, it's worse for me than that. I feel like that every single Sunday. (laughs) Uh, But it's a reminder, uh, we depend upon God. We depend upon Him for these times. I hope you've been praying for these times. I hope you pray for these times. I hope you pray that God would open up our hearts and open up our minds during these times. I pray that God would give us His message during these days. I don't want to get up here and say, this is my message to you all. If I had to get up here and tell you what I thought every Sunday, I would never get up here. Because I don't have anything to say. I want God to speak to us through His Word. So I hope that's your prayer. And I hope that you pray that God would bless us with His Word. So would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 11 this morning. Beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard 
that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, we trust in you. We trust you to be among us here this morning. We trust your word to do a work in us this morning. We trust your spirit to apply this word, to press this word, to pierce our hearts and change us. Help us to see clearly the truth that comes from your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Sometimes the most frustrating thing as a parent is when you have to repeat yourself. You know that? I just told you what to do and now I have to repeat myself and, play, and say it again. What we just read in Acts chapter 11 is the third time that this event has been told in the book of Acts. The third time it's been repeated. You think about all of 
Acts and all, even all of the Bible and the precious space that is there. All those words that God has orchestrated to put there in His Word, the precious space. And now we're told this event for the third time. It's repeated again for us. Why do you think that is? You think it's because we need to hear it again? think it's because it's important for us to get it. Don't miss it. And so it's repeated for us here. And as I thought about these verses this past few weeks, an event in Jesus' life came back to my mind. Maybe you remember this event from Jesus' life. The encounter that he had with a man that we often call the rich young ruler. That man comes to Jesus with a most important question, an absolutely necessary question, and the question is this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Those are the kinds of questions we wish people would come up and ask us, don't we? It doesn't get much easier than that, does it? We would think that such a one who would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, that that one is ripe for the harvest. But what happens? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes the man to the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? You want to inherit eternal life? Have you done this list? You can imagine the rich young ruler, in his mind, working his way down the list. Making nice, neat little check marks next to those things. So, perhaps with enthusiasm, he says... All these I have kept from my youth. Good news, Jesus. I've done all of these things. I've passed the test. Not only have I passed the test, I've aced the test. (laughs) I've got everything under control. I've obeyed. I am good. This is what it takes to inherit eternal life. If this is what it takes to know that I have assurance of life, I've got it in the bag. But what does Jesus say in his response to this man? One thing you still lack. Hold on just a minute, rich young ruler. Let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. There's still something missing. You still lack something. There's still something that you need. And Jesus tells him this, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Whatever enthusiasm was there, whatever hope was there, in that moment, in that instance, All of that enthusiasm and all of that hope was sucked right out of him. It says that when he heard this, he became very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. And what Jesus had done 
with these two little sentences, Jesus had made it evident that while the rich young ruler thought that he had kept all of the commandments, there was yet one commandment he could not and would not obey. What commandment was that? The very first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. This man worshipped his money, his wealth, his possessions. And in failing the very first commandment, there was no way that he would be able to keep any of the commandments. Here is this man who wanted to direct, to orchestrate, to control his assurance of life. Jesus, tell me what I need to do in order to have eternal life, to know without a shadow of a doubt that I have life. Give me the checklist. I'll do the checklist. Let me know what I can do so I can grab onto it myself. That's man's problem. Man would rather attempt to direct the assurance of life than accept God's plan, God's direction, and God's action in bringing the assurance into our lives that we need. We're control freaks. <laughs> we want to assure ourselves that we've obtained eternal life. We would like to know that the assurance of life is firm within our grasps, that we have done all that we need to do in order to secure life, and that life has come to us. But if God is the one who brings the assurance of life into our lives, then we're faced with a different reality. It's out of our control. It's completely out of our grasp and out of our power. And we are completely dependent upon God to provide it. So where does this assurance of life begin if God is the one who is granting it to us? It begins with what we read in these verses here at the very end, particularly this very last verse this morning, which I think really controls the flow of the whole text. God grants repentance that leads to life. There's that assurance of life. At the end there, how do we get to that life? Where does it begin? It begins with God granting repentance. And let's face it, isn't that what the rich young ruler needed? He needed to repent. Repent of his worship of wealth, repent of his idolatrous heart, and repent of his breaking God's commandment. And let's face it, that's what we all need, isn't it? Repentance, turning from our sin, turning from our wicked ways, turning from that which separates us from God and returning to Him. And the beautiful news for us is that God grants, God gives repentance. And so this morning... Three results that should happen in our lives because God grants repentance. So, number one, when God grants repentance, it becomes the dominating concern in our lives. When God grants repentance, it becomes the dominating concern in our lives. We're picking up this event in Acts chapter 11, where Peter has just preached the gospel to the household of a Gentile named Cornelius. 
And not only did Cornelius believe after he heard the gospel, but all of Cornelius' household believed and was saved. And news began to spread like wildfire. The news traveled to other places, other people. It says here that news even traveled to the other apostles besides Peter. It traveled to the brothers and sisters in the church throughout the region of Judea, which is the southern part of Israel. The news traveled fast because something amazing was happening. The Gentiles had also received the word of God. What a beautiful description of what had taken place. The Gentiles received the word of God. They didn't merely hear the word of God. They didn't uh, they weren't merely informed by the Word of God. No, they took in the Word of God. They believed it. They put their faith in what it told them and taught them. They received it. And it was becoming clear. The Word of God was not just to be received by the Jews. And the Word of God was not just to be received by the Samaritans, but now the Word of God was to be received by the Gentiles as well. So what does that mean? The Word of God is for everybody to receive. Everybody is to hear the Word of God. We pray that everyone would hear it and receive it. This is the Spirit-empowered mission set forth by Jesus Christ in Acts 1.8 of being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It was coming to fruition with the inclusion of the Gentiles. But, as you can imagine, not everyone was enthusiastic about it. Some even had a problem with it. After Peter had stayed in Caesarea on the coast of Israel, he travels back to the the south-central Israel, to Jerusalem. Before he even gets there, the news is already spread. People already know in Jerusalem what's happened with Cornelius and the Gentiles, them receiving the Word of God. And Peter, a Jew, comes to Jerusalem, and there, what happens? Other Jews come to Peter and they criticize him for what he had done. This group, known in our text as the Circumcision Party, and they criticized Peter. What is it that they criticized Peter for? This is the the problem that we run into here in our text. The criticism is this. You went, Peter, to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. In the Jewish mind and customs and rules, that was not right. It was against the law that they were trying to uphold. The law had been given to them from Moses. And we must understand for a moment why they were so concerned about this. Why did these people make such a big deal that Peter went to uncircumcised Gentiles and ate with them? We have to realize the law focused on the people being a holy people. A people who were set apart for God. People who were distinct from the pagan nations that were around them. So the law was a way for the Jews to distinguish themselves from the rest of the world. At the outset, we could see in one way that this maybe was a 
proper concern. The circumcision party criticized Peter for not being concerned about the holiness code, for not remaining distinct and separate from the pagan nations. They were concerned that Peter had gone to people who were unclean and had eaten with them presumably food that was unclean. Peter, do you know what you're doing? You are making yourself unclean. You are compromising your holiness. You are blurring the lines of distinction that have been put into place. God wants us to be separate from the world. When we take a look at it, we might hear that that's a good concern to have. But there's just one problem. They were wrong. We have to understand what it is exactly that they were wanting. They're called the circumcision party for a reason. It was their desire that in order for Peter to be able to go to these Gentiles, that these Gentiles first had to do something. They had to be circumcised. They had to become more Jewish. They had to accept that physical external sign of circumcision in order for Peter to be able to associate with these people. But what we need to understand is that what the Gentiles really needed was not to become more Jewish. What the Gentiles needed was not to outwardly conform to the law. What the Gentiles needed first and foremost was an inward transformation. What the Gentiles needed was a heart transplant. The Gentiles did not need to become more Jewish. No, the Gentiles needed repentance. That should have been the dominating concern of these men. The dominating concern should have been that when the Gentiles receive the Word of God, that it does what always happens when people receive the Word of God. It changes them. It brought repentance and faith into their lives. The dominating concern in our lives is that God would grant repentance to us, and our prayer is that God would grant repentance to many, many, many people. With the truth that it is God who grants repentance, the dominating concern in our life and in the lives of others is a complete change in the direction of one's life. Our concern is not that people would have to meet some conditions before Christ is offered to them. That somehow they have to meet some external standard before we offer Jesus Christ. Clean up your life. Get your act together. Do these things and then you can come to Christ. No, we offer Christ without conditions. We are called to go straight to Jesus Christ. Think about this. We are in the same camp as the people that Peter went to. We are Gentiles. And there is nothing that we have to do in order to become more Jewish before we can come to Christ. There is no set of criteria set before us. There are no conditions that we have to meet. We are free to run straight to Jesus. And we don't need anything in order to somehow attain or buy Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah says. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money. Come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
you don't have anything, you're exactly where you need to be. (laughs) Come to Christ and be changed. Come to Christ and find repentance. Come to Christ and be completely transformed. God's gift of repentance should be the dominating concern in our lives. And we see it contrasted here with these people who criticized Peter. It was not the dominating concern in their lives. So how do you know? How do you know if God's gift of repentance is a dominating concern in your life? Let me ask you this. What is your response when it happens? What is your reaction when God grants repentance to a sinner? After all, this is why Christ came, Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If when God grants repentance to sinners, you respond like the circumcision party, there's something wrong. If you respond with a criticizing, critical spirit, then you are missing something. What should have been the response to this news? Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what does Jesus tell us the father says about the prodigal son when he returns home? For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. If God granting repentance does not cause joy to flow out of your heart and out of your life, then something is wrong. There is a disconnect between your heart and between God's heart. It should be upon our hearts that God would so transform people, that God would so save people from their sin, that God would bring people to turn from their sin, that we long for that, that we pray for that, and that when we see God give that gift to people, we rejoice. Repentance isn't working your way back to God. You remember going back to that prodigal son story for a moment. The prodigal son goes away, squanders everything, right? He's had the inheritance given to him beforehand, squanders it all. He's in the pig pig pens, eating the pig food. Comes to his senses, realizes the servants of my father are eating better than I am. I'll go back to my father. I'll say, Father, treat me like one of your servants. I'll work my way back there. What happens? As the prodigal son is returning home, the father sees his son at a distance. Like he's been looking for him, waiting for him to return. And then what happens? The father runs to his son. You wouldn't do that in those days. Respectable man wouldn't get up and run. But here it is. The father, he's so glad to see his son that he runs to his son. And the son who had prepared this speech. What happens? 
before he can even get the words out of his mouth, the father embraces him and hugs him and kisses him. You're not going to work your way back into my favor. You're my son. You're my son who was dead, but now you're alive. Kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. Repentance is not about working your way back into God's grace and God's favor. When God grants repentance, it says, you are mine. Turn from your sin. And he does that work in our hearts where we say, it's all of God's grace and love and mercy upon me that he's done that. And that's the dominating concern in our lives. Number two, when God grants repentance, there is no doubt it is accomplished by him in our lives. When God grants repentance, there is no doubt it is accomplished by him in our lives. There's a saying that's sometimes said in the world of sports. It goes like this. Sometimes the best offense is a good defense. This is where we get Peter's defense. He's just been criticized in the first three verses. Now in verse 4, we see Peter begin to explain things in order. Tell them what had happened. Tell them the events of his life. He's been criticized for his actions. But I find it fascinating, his response. He didn't puff up his chest with pride, throw around some apostolic authority. He wasn't so personally attacked that he had to lash back out at his accusers trying to get some revenge for criticizing him. It wasn't that at all. Peter explained to them what had happened to him. And more importantly, this is Peter saying, here's what God is doing. What a great defense. <laughs> Peter doesn't put himself in the center of the conflict. No, he puts God at the center. This isn't Peter's hobby horse. This isn't his soapbox to get up on. This isn't his agenda. This wasn't even his plan. This was God's plan from beginning to end. And where did it all start? Where did it all start with Peter? Peter was praying, wasn't he? I was in the city of Joppa praying. Maybe we would even think back to how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Peter, through prayer, like we all are doing in prayer, was submitting to God's will, the will of the Father. And what's amazing in Peter's life, in this instance, God reveals his will through this revelation of a vision. A divine communication given to Peter, and I believe a necessary communication, an extraordinary communication, because of the radical readjustment that had to be made in the way Peter thought and about how all Jewish Christians thought. Peter's vision had to do with various kinds of animals that descended in a sheet 
And where God tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat, Peter in the vision reiterates, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, that he has faithfully maintained the food laws with Judaism. Jews could only eat certain foods. This sheet that came down out of heaven most likely contained both clean and unclean foods. But even in this vision from God, Peter believes he is maintaining the standard God has set forth. But God is about to show him something different. God is about to show him that this vision, which appeared to speak directly to the Jewish food laws, actually had to do with a greater concern of God's than food. It had to do with people. I don't think it's an accident that Peter had these actions in, these vision, in this vision happen three times, and then there just happens to be three Gentiles standing outside his door when he comes to. I think there's a reason Peter is able to make that connection. I just had this vision three times, and now there's three Gentiles standing outside of my door asking for me to go with them. I think there's a correlation so that we see God was applying this vision not merely to food but to people, to people called unclean by the Jews. But now that God was the one making them clean. And in fact, we find the Holy Spirit speaking to Peter, telling him to go with these three men. And what does it say? Making no distinction. Here it is, directly from God. Make no distinction between these three men and yourself. Mankind is good at making distinctions. We are experts at playing favorites. But here with these words... God was going to the Gentiles. Before these events, Peter would have been in the same boat as those who were now criticizing him. But through these events, God had changed his mind. God was showing that the Gentiles were to be included into the people of God. And so Peter took six other Jewish Christians with him who would be able to testify and confirm that what Peter saw happen in Caesarea really happened. Not only had God been at work in Peter's life, changing him, transforming him, working in him, but God had also been working in the life of Cornelius, getting him ready. The angel appeared to him, told him to send for Peter, and that Peter had this message, the message that came from God, the message of the gospel, the message by which they would be Saved. He had this message and they had to hear it. And I believe it is clear. Cornelius and all his household were not saved until they heard the message of the gospel and believed in that message. It is God using the message of the gospel to save people from their sins. This is where we get to the heart of the problem because this is what people need. Cornelius and his household didn't need to become more Jewish. They didn't need to jump through a bunch of hoops. 
They didn't need to feel better about themselves. No, Cornelius and his family needed to be saved. And that is what all people need. They need to be saved. And there's only one person who can save them, and that is God. And there is only one way that He saves them, and that is through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is through faith in Him that people are saved. It is faith in the work done upon the cross by Christ where He suffered and bled and died to redeem sinners from death and from eternal separation from God. It is the good news Peter proclaimed to these people so that they would believe and be saved. And as this happened, as Peter proclaimed this message by which they were saved, Peter saw the most miraculous thing happen. He saw the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles just as it had fallen upon the Jewish Christians at the beginning. He saw the beginning of Acts all over again with these Gentiles, which made it clear that these Gentiles were full-fledged Christians, full-fledged children of God. There is no second-class Christians. These Gentile believers were indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. And as Peter is witnessing this happening, he's reminded of what Jesus Christ had told him and told all of the disciples back in Acts chapter 1. Do you see what he reflects upon there? The word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit Just as John immersed people in water baptism, so it is a recognition now that all true Christians are those who are immersed with the Holy Spirit. This is one of the the things that we are symbolizing in water baptism. The one making the public profession of faith has been immersed and baptized with the Holy Spirit, just like they are about to be immersed and baptized with water. It's also important to see here that such a baptism of the Holy Spirit comes with belief. Just as the Jewish Christians believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, so these Gentile Christians believed and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no second sign that's needed in order to be baptized with the Spirit. It happens right then and there when people are converted. When they believed, when they believe they are baptized with the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit, we all are baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. All believers are baptized with the Spirit. And what I love about this action of being baptized with the Spirit is what it says in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because there, John the Baptist tells those people whom he is baptizing that there's one who's coming. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Who is it? That John the Baptist attributes this action of being baptized with the Holy Spirit to. It is the action of Jesus Christ. So again, here, when these people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, who is it that's baptizing them with the Holy Spirit? It is our risen, active Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
And this should astound us. It should make our jaws drop for one particular reason. Think about this for a moment this morning. The Jews were saying, it is unlawful for you, a Jew, to associate and eat with unclean Gentiles. But what is it that God does? God himself, in the Holy Spirit, associates in a most intimate way with Gentiles. God himself, in the Holy Spirit, indwells, takes up residence within the Gentile Christians. Look at what God does by indwelling those people with his Holy Spirit. Are you better than God? Are you holier than God? Are you purer than God? Does not God know what he is doing? Of course he does, because it's been his plan all along. God and man, man, both Jew and Gentile, dwelling together again in perfect unity and peace. How we need to hear this message today, and I believe for this reason, because the world and the man, mankind of this world touts that man is the great inclusionist. That it's man's idea to include everyone, and the worst thing that anyone could ever be is an exclusionist. Those same people tout that the God of the Bible is prejudiced, he's narrow, he's an exclusionist. But God's plan was always to save people from all nations, from all walks of life. The gospel call goes out to everyone without discrimination, without favoritism, without restraint, without prejudice or exclusion or narrowness for this precise reason. Everyone, everyone needs to be saved. But this is precisely where the rub is with man. Man pretends to be the great inclusionist because he says that man doesn't have a problem. Man doesn't need to be saved, that everyone is basically good and needs to be accepted for what they are. No change is needed. But God accurately sees that mankind has a horrible horrible problem, a miserable condition, is in the worst of conditions. The most awful thing would be not to care about this miserable condition and to do nothing about people who are in this condition. But God, in His love and in His grace and His mercy, has provided a way out through the death of and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. God sacrificed His Son to save sinners, all kinds of sinners. And now everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved, will be rescued, will be changed, transformed, born again, and accepted by God. It is God who grants repentance, even repentance to Gentiles. And there is no doubt that God accomplished this from beginning to end. This wasn't Peter's doing. This wasn't Peter's agenda. This wasn't Peter's decision. The whole defense, the whole account is about God accomplishing repentance in the lives of Gentile people. And Peter in no way could stop it. Who was Peter to stand in God's way? And tell God what he could or couldn't do. To tell God who he could or couldn't save. 
to tell God whom he could or couldn't indwell with his spirit. If Peter had done any of those things, he would have been found opposing God. When God is working and active and accomplishing glorious, glorious repentance in the lives of sinners, the last place you want to be found is standing in God's way. We don't know better than God. When God changes people, when God grants repentance, when the direction of people's lives are changed, there's no doubt that it's something accomplished by God. And it brings about great glory for God. It's the last thing this morning, number three. When God grants repentance, He deserves all the glory from our lives. When God grants repentance, He deserves all the glory from our lives. Have you ever been speechless? For some of you, that might be more difficult to imagine than other people. Put that aside for a moment. Have you ever been speechless? In fact, have you ever been speechless in an argument where someone says something and all of a sudden you realize there is no way that you can win that argument because the other person is right? You are left speechless. If that's ever happened to you, or if you could imagine that happening, how much humility and submission takes place to admit you were wrong? That you are not in the right. In fact, it's one of the hardest things to say, isn't it? I was wrong. But these people in the argument with Peter come to this humbling place in this last verse, verse 18. They have nothing to say. They're silenced. But instead, they glorify God. They gave God all the glory for what he had done. They praised God for his work. And they came to this realization, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was no small realization. This was, this was something amazing that was happening in the minds of these Jews. How could Gentiles get to God? How could Gentiles be accepted by God? How could Gentiles get life? The answer before was to try to become as Jewish as possible, but now... God granted repentance that leads to life, even to Gentiles. They were accepted by Him through Jesus Christ. That's the good news for us. God made distinctions. God played favorites. There's no way I would have ever gotten in. But now God has provided a way for us to have assurance of life. Such an assurance of life comes from the divine action of God upon the lives and souls of sinners. First note that repentance is granted or given by God. It's a gift that comes from Him to us as sinners. And repentance in our lives is because of His grace, because of His unmerited favor upon our lives. We do not do anything to deserve it, to conjure it up. No, it's actually one of God's good gifts to us. And think about it for a moment this morning. What is it that God grants? Does God grant a knowledge of repentance? 
There is knowledge that goes with repentance, but that's not it. I fear that many people who think they are Christians have gone wrong when it comes to this point. God does not merely grant you the knowledge to define what repentance is. God is not going to ask you, do you know what repentance is? And that you have some great definition lined out there for Him. It's more than that, isn't it? It's an actual action of repenting. It's an actual turning. It's not just, I have a definition of knowledge, I know what repentance is. It's, no, have you done it? Have you repented? God grants, God gives us the ability to take this action. It is an action to be taken, not just knowledge to fill our minds up with. Give God glory that He would make us able to be able to take this action. What is it that we do? What is this action look like in our lives? And think about that. How many people, if you tell them, <laughs> repentance is a gift from God, how many people are going to be like, give me that gift? It's not what people are standing in line for usually. Not many would want that gift. To many, hearing that God grants repentance is like saying God gives you the gift of feeling bad about yourself. That God's gift of repentance is more like giving someone the plague than giving them a good gift. We might be tempted to say that God's gift of repentance would drive many people to despair. That is, if we do not have an accurate view of what repentance really is. Simply put, it's turning from sin and turning, returning to God. With more detail, it is when a sinner is brought to their senses by God to the odiousness, the filthiness, and danger their sin poses to their life and how such sin runs in complete opposition to the holiness of God and the righteousness of God's law so that that one apprehends the mercy that can be found in Christ to those who are penitent. And when that realization takes place, we fall to our knees and are grieved over our sin and hate our sin and turn from sin to know God, to living the life that He's purposed for us in all of His ways. It's forsaking the old way of life, the life ruled, that's dominated, enslaved by the power of sin. It means the old self has been crucified with Jesus Christ so that we would be free from the power of sin to live for God. Give Him glory. But who would think that it's repentance that leads to life? What is it that leads to life? Would you say repentance is a good thing, a necessary thing, a vital thing? Is it good for you 
to have repentance? If you want to have the life that only God can give, repentance must be there. You cannot get around it. You will not get life without repentance, which means you will not get God without repentance. What is it that brings assurance of life? What is it that brings assurance of salvation? Repentance. Through faith and repentance, we find that we are really living. Life is something good. Life is something we long for. What, what do we think when we hear this sometimes? Or what does our world think when they hear this sometimes? You mean, in order to obtain life, I have to repent? No way. I'll look for another way. But there is no other way. There is no other way to life. There is no other way to be alive to God and dead to sin. It is a godly grief over our sin that must take hold of someone. It is this godly grief that has taken a hold of every Christian. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you want to know the assurance of life today? Have you repented? Not just know the definition of repentance, but have you actually turned? Has God granted you to see the seriousness, the stench and filth of your sin? Are you beginning to see the mercy you can receive from the Savior who paid the punishment for our sin in His body on the cross? Is it your desire to forsake that sin and turn to God? Then you can know what it really means to live. You can know the repentance that leads to life. What about if you're a believer here this morning? You've already put your faith in Christ, repented of your sin. But could it be that there's still something in your life that's keeping you from that assurance of life, that's keeping you from that assurance of salvation? Why might that doubt creep into our lives? One reason is because there can be an inconsistency in our obedience. If you are living an inconsistent Christian life, you will not have assurance. Could it even be that you've developed a pattern of disobedience in your life? When that happens, we are plagued by such inconsistencies in our obedience that we grieve the Holy Spirit. We begin to doubt His indwelling and the security of redemption in Christ Jesus. What's the cure for such an ailment? Repentance. Remember what Martin Luther nailed to the church door in Wittenberg as a part of his 95 Theses. When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Perhaps there's repentance that needs to happen in your life today. Do not hesitate to repent because God has shown you, the Holy Spirit has convicted you that you must repent. And with this repentance comes the assurance of forgiveness.
and what will flow out of such faith from the sinner who repents. Joy and assurance. Joy and assurance that is to flood throughout the whole of the Christian life from the very beginning of when they repent. Why such joy and assurance? Because God has granted repentance that leads to life. Give all glory to God. Let's pray. Father, this is what people in our world need. They need you to grant repentance that leads to life. And this is even what we need. Lord, we don't stop repenting once we turn to Christ. But the whole of the Christian life is repentance. And Lord, we need soft hearts. So we pray that you would grant us soft hearts in those areas that maybe you've convicted of us today, that we need to repent of, that we need to turn from, that we would turn from our sin, be changed. That is repentance, a radical redirection of one's life, and that's something that only you can do. And so we pray that you would do that work in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.